Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Path 11 podcast today with your hosts, Mike and April. Today, we're interviewing Paul Rademacher, who is a leading voice in the quest to bridge the gap between inner exploration and everyday life at both the individual and societal levels. He is currently creating a home study course that will help people to navigate this path in a society that can often be resistant to it. From 2007 to 2011, Paul was executive director of the Monroe Institute in Faber, Virginia, known for its pioneering work in the exploration of human consciousness. He became interested in consciousness exploration due to a mystical experience that unfolded during a construction accident in 1980. This profoundly life-changing event convinced him to enroll at Princeton Theological Seminary, from which he graduated with a Master of Divinity degree in 1985. During his 15 years of service as a Presbyterian pastor, he studied extensively in the fields of consciousness and spirituality, seeking to bring together traditional meditation techniques with contemporary expressions of spiritual exploration. He is a former building contractor, designer, and journeyman carpenter. Paul is also an experienced public speaker, spiritual director, certified seminar leader, artist, closet musician, husband, and father of three. His book, A Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, Travel Tips for the Spiritually Perplexed, was published in 2009. He is currently working on his second book, A Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to Time, Money, and Enlightenment, as well as other writing collaborations. We would like to welcome Paul, one of our dear friends, to the show today. Okay, well, we'd like to welcome Paul to our show today. Hi, Paul. Hi, April. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Just lovely to be here with you both. And you're in Florida now, right? I am. I'm in Florida in Fernandina Beach. And so we're about a five-minute walk from the Atlantic Ocean. And uh, don't tell anybody, but it's paradise. (laughs) (laughs) When we last saw you, it was uh, 2008. And we had uh, started filming The Path Afterlife, our first film. And you were... um, executive director at the Monroe Institute in Virginia mm-hmm. and you had you and Skip had invited us over and we sat down uh, we took a whole day and interviewed you both and that's kind of where we left you <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just before we got on the call here you, you had just mentioned that um, that was kind of early on at the Institute right and we kind of talk about that in the film too that uh, how you got to the Institute is there any can you briefly I don't know if it's a a brief way to describe it, how you got to the Institute, just to, so the people of the podcast uh, that listen to the podcast, uh, they don't have to go back and watch the whole movie just to sure. figure out who you are. <laughs> sure. Right. Well, uh, my story kind of started when I, back in my twenties, I had a couple of experiences that I would call mystical experiences. One, when I was hitchhiking, um, across country and ended up in Big Sur, California. And I had, um, um, I was standing by the roadside and suddenly the whole, scene around me changed into this, what I would call a unitive kind of consciousness where everything, uh, the dividing lines between myself and the exterior world began to fade away and it was a sense of oneness and, and safety like in, unlike anything I had ever experienced before. And the second experience was uh, a few years after that when I was, my brother and I had a construction company and I fell off the roof of a, of a house we were building fractured my hip and sort of dumped into this other reality uh, that was not a physical world but was a world uh, beyond the physical. 
And it was it was really shocking to me that I experienced that, and uh, I found myself surrounded by complete, total peace, and uh, all the anxiety that I'd been feeling dropped away, and I was uh, standing in front of uh, this being of light, and we were conversing about my life without using words. Those two experiences really shaped me in very profound ways, because I found out that the physical world um, within the physical world, there is a, an underlying essence that is, um, for lack of a better word, a spiritual basis. So that was what I found out when I was hitchhiking up through California. And then when I fell off the roof, I found out that we have access to worlds that go beyond the physical. So those two uh, awarenesses really changed the way I looked at the world. Uh, the problem was, though, that I... As a result of that second experience, I, I had a sense that, that I was being called into the ministry. Now, mind you, I didn't have any language for any of these experiences other than religious language. And so I felt like it was kind of a natural thing to go into the ministry to sort of pursue that, uh, that religious perspective. So I, I went to three years of seminary uh, and became a Presbyterian pastor for 15 years, but um, there was still this hunger that the, the this sort of itch that the church wasn't scratching for me, and so a couple of years into the ministry, uh, my wife and I, Jackie and I, were on vacation up in Toronto, Canada, and we walked into what was then the world's largest bookstore, and you know thousands upon thousands of books everywhere you looked, and all of a sudden one book just practically jumped off the shelf. Uh, for me, and that was Robert Monroe's second book called Far Journeys. And Robert Monroe was a real pioneer in examining and exploring this whole experience of what was what became known as the out-of-body experience. Uh, when I read his book, it was it was really stunning to me because for the first time here was somebody who was talking about things that I could connect to, but he wasn't using religious words or dogma or speculation. But he was just talking about his his own experience. So it was very compelling to me. And I thought when I read his book, I read it cover to cover, I think almost in one sitting. And when I got to the back of the book, I found out that there was a place called the Monroe Institute. And I thought at that time, boy, if, if I could ever get there, it would be the most amazing thing. And right after that was a second thought that said, wouldn't it be amazing to work at a place like that? Knowing, of course, that neither one of those was ever going to happen because I didn't have any the time or the money to go to the Monroe Institute. But about 11 years after that, someone actually paid my way to go. And I went through the first course, which is called the Gateway Experience. And uh, I'm excuse the Gateway. Um, and that, those worlds that I experienced when I was hitchhiking and also when I fell off the roof opened up in living technicolor. It was the most stunning thing I could imagine. Um, and so I was, re I was hooked immediately, and so I went back for uh, several other uh, courses, which was kind of a trick because I was still trying to pretend like I was a mainline Presbyterian pastor when you know my entire world was heading in way different directions. And uh, so I, this split between my inner world and my outer world got so big, and so the tension was so painful that eventually I knew that I had to choose one or the other, and there was just, for me, there was no choice. I, I had to follow this really strange path of exploring the mystical life. So I left the ministry in the year 2000, 
And about two months after I walked out of the door of the church, I got a call from the Monroe Institute asking me if I wanted to become a residential facilitator. I got that call. It was like I bounced back into 11 years or no, it actually many years before that where I had 11 years before that where I had read Robert Monroe's book thinking wouldn't it be amazing to work at a place like that and and it was as almost as if my future self had been whispering into my past self's ear saying this is going to be your destiny so I got to start working there as a residential facilitator and then in 2007 I think it was uh, they asked me if I would like to become the executive director there. And so that uh, I did that for four years. So that was how I got to the Monroe Institute. I don't know if you remember this, Paul, but after we interviewed you, I remember you saying to me, oh, do you do this for a living, interviewing people? And I said, no, no <laughs> not at all, actually. And you said to me with such conviction, you said, you'll be doing this. You will be doing this. You'll be interviewing people. I see you interviewing people. And I like shrugged this off. I was thinking, what? Yeah. Nah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. That's okay. It was a good interview, yeah. but I don't know, you know what I'm doing. And then here we are, Mike and I, doing this podcast. And sure enough, what are we doing? We're interviewing people. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, that was back in 2008. I mean, I well, mm. I remember it because I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I will. Maybe, I don't know. Well, probably not. So I just find it funny that here we are fast forward. X amount of years later, and uh, and you were right. So, <laughs> well, you know, those are the, those are the days when I was uh, aspiring to be psychic, and but I was instead psychotic, and so I, you know, that's probably <laughs> where that came from. But you know, the, I I think there's an interesting thing in that, and this kind of dips over a little bit into the work that I'm doing now. You know, one of the things that uh, I got to work with uh, Skip Atwater at the Monroe Institute, and Skip was the one of the people who was really instrumental in starting the whole remote viewing program for the Army that eventually became known as Stargate. And he and I would always get into these wonderful conversations because his view of, of reality is very, very different as a result of his work. And um, he was always convinced that... Uh, the way remote viewing worked, especially when you were remote viewing things that would happen into the future, was that your future self was actually speaking back through time to your, your present self. And it was always his opinion that information traveled both backwards and forwards in time. And, you know, I've had enough of those experiences where, you know, I've had those intuitions about my own life primarily that um, I, began, I began to think that he's right about that. And so, you know, I think that that may have something to do with that maybe that comment, maybe it was my future self, again, whispering in my ear about something that might have to do with you. And I don't do that. I, I'm, I really don't pretend to be a psychic in, in that <laughs> way at all. But I think there may be a dynamic behind that that's true. Yeah, interesting. So what, what exactly are you doing now? What have you been up to and what projects? I know you have one book out, but um, right. what, what, what's going on and what have you been doing since the Monroe Institute? Well, you know, when, uh, when I was still at the Monroe Institute, um, there was a, a time at, nearing the end of those four years where I was getting pretty restless. I, uh, you know, I, th I had thought that it was going to be my dream job in a lot of ways. But, you know, one, one of the things that's interesting, when you get um, 
in an administrative role, it, it, it becomes administration. And so it wasn't as if I was living in Shangri-La. It was like a, a job, like any other job in, in many respects. And I was always focused on making sure that it was the best experience for the people who would come there. And I was wrapped up in, you know, how are we going to uh, fund this thing? You know, because money was always an issue. And, and we were, this is, of course, back in 2008 was when the whole economy was collapsing. And so people didn't have discretionary income anymore to do things like come to the Monroe Institute. So there were a lot of issues that, that began to pop up, which is okay. You know, that just goes with any job. But uh, it, I was also doing a lot of traveling on behalf of the Monroe Institute. So what I noticed was that my own spiritual life began to really dry up. And the methodologies of the Monroe Institute weren't really working for me anymore because I, I couldn't get into that sort of um, relaxed mindset anymore. I was always running. And uh, I also noticed something else that became uh, a question that was to be the focus of my work from then up until now. One of the things I noticed is that regardless of what institution or organization I was a part of, no matter how great the work, no matter how wonderful the people, no matter how terrific the mission, it wasn't long before people's egos began to get involved. And, and all of a sudden, the, the big vision kind of gets uh, lost and, you know, there are territorial disputes and, 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 you know, control issues and so on and so forth. And um, I began to wonder, why is that? What's, what's going on behind that? And I, I, I didn't uh, realize that that was going to be such a profound question for me, but it was. And I was, I was musing about this one day. It was, I, was, I was walking on the beach one day, sort of thinking about this and sort of throwing this question out to the universe, of course, not, not expecting any kind of an answer. But there was, it was a very clear message in my head uh, that said, just go to your heart. Now, I mean, that's really kind of a sappy um, melodramatic answer, but it didn't feel that way to me at the time. It really felt like this was, you know, I need to go back and look at something that I haven't, I've had assumptions about, and I need to re-examine those assumptions. So that night, I found myself going to bed, and uh, I did, just as the voice had suggested, go to your heart, and I, all, all I did was to simply move my attention to the region uh, where the heart is, and I began to notice one thing almost immediately was that the chatter in my brain began to fall away almost entirely to this profound quiet, and uh, which was really great for me because I'm not the best meditator in the world. You know, my mind was always going. And to find that suddenly fall away in a very effortless way was, was pretty powerful to me. And so I would do this uh, each night before going to bed. And then before I would get out of bed in the morning, I would go back into this heart space. And as I did that, I, I began to realize that my dream world started opening up in, in very profound ways. So it was almost like I was preparing for the night's activity by exploring this transition space between waking and sleep. And then also by doing that in the morning, I could recall the dream from the night before 
And I found that in that space, I could re-enter the dream itself and then uh, enter into a conversation with the the, uh, people who would show up in the dream. So it wasn't as if the dream was something that was standing alone. It became a very fertile area to, by entering into the heart, to uh, establish a relationship from the dream. So this is quite different from uh, looking at the dream afterwards and then trying to interpret it. But it was a way of actually re-entering the dream in um, and extending the conversation so that I could develop a, re- a longer-term relationship with the people who emerged from it. So that was kind of the beginning for me of uh, this this path that it, that I've been on ever since. And you, you wrote a couple books, or actually, you wrote you released one book, but you're working on a second book. Is that right? Correct. Right. The first book was um, called a, Spitch- a Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, and in that, what I, what I tried to do because I came out of the uh, religious uh, context. I, I, being the rebel that I am, I really wanted to re-examine that whole, uh, all the assumptions that we have about religion. But I also wanted to weave in with that my own story uh, that starts, as I said before, with the um, falling off the roof and, and the experience I had in Big Sur, California. And to weave that into with uh, this exploration of consciousness, and then also bring in the story of of my experiences at the Monroe Institute, looking at at all of those and finding ways in which that related back uh, to experiences that happened within the Bible that I I'm quite conver- con- uh, convinced are were of a mystical quality, so that there there isn't a a radical disjuncture between what we've received from the biblical tradition to uh, exploring uh, the explorations that happened at the Monroe Institute. And so that was the focus of what I tried to do in that first book. And then the, the, what I'm working on now is is actually going to be a sort of book two of that, where I'm beginning to uh, experience since leaving the Monroe Institute. Okay, and that's uh, called A Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to... Time, money, and enlightenment. <laughs> <laughs> That's the working title now. Okay. But you never know what it's going to okay. be. Okay. Yeah, it might right. change. Do you know when that might be released? Uh, that's an interesting question because I've been working on that uh, pretty diligently. And I've, I've got about four chapters finished up in that. And I have a pretty good idea of where I want to go for the rest of it. But I've also got another project that seems to be uh, rearing its head right now. Um, and well, let, let me just kind of jump into that, and then we can maybe fill in the, the gaps uh, between those two extremes. Sure. One, uh, one of the things that uh, happened back, gosh, it was almost a year ago now, I guess, is, is I was exploring, continuing to explore this dream um, world and exploring this, this space between waking consciousness and sleep. And then on the reverse side, between sleep and waking, it's a time that I call I, I began to call the twilight awareness. It's because it's this in-between awareness that's not fully awake, it's not fully asleep, in which but where these two uh, domains of awareness can begin to overlap in really magnificent ways. Well, I had a dream one night, and the dream itself was not all that significant, but out of that dream. 
as I was exploring it in the morning, and, and I should say that uh, this exploration of the dream would not just happen as I was lying in bed before I would get up out of bed in the morning, but it would continue as I would go to the computer and I would write down the dream and then continue the conversation with whoever had showed up. And uh, as I was continuing the conversation, a new question emerged. And it was this. I noticed that when I would explore these different venues of awareness, this could be the waking state, it could be the dream state, it could be the meditational state, the states that I explore, explored and experienced at the Monroe Institute, um, it was always from a particular perspective. And that perspective was one of me and in the waking state, it would be me within this body. If it was some other state, it was always a, this sense of the individualized self. And so there was me, and then outside of that me, there was not me. And so there was this uh, uh, me operating within a context or a landscape, uh, very much like I would in waking life. I began to wonder, is it possible to move beyond that uh, sense of me and not me into another, another awareness. So I, uh, this question came up one morning, and I'm writing this out down, and I'm discussing this with uh, uh, the dream figure. And the dream figure said, yes, this, this is the right question for you. Now, well, that's, that's interesting. That's good. So um, two hours after I formulated that question, I got an email from a guy named Jeffrey Martin, Dr. Jeffrey Martin. Now, I got to know Jeffrey uh, in my work at the Monroe Institute. And Jeffrey would drop by every once in a while just to kind of update me where he was. And he was very interested in exploring this awareness that very often we would call enlightenment. It could be samadhi or um, unitive consciousness, Christ consciousness, experience the all or this, the ground of being. Name you, you put whatever term you want to it. But he's the only person I've ever known who really looked at this question from a research perspective. So what he did was he went, traveled the world over and, and interviewed literally thousands of people, people who had been experiencing this state of awareness or states of awareness for at least one year or more. And out of those series of, of interviews and conversations, he began to see that there was a continuum of, of this awareness, and, and he noticed that there were sort of four discrete locations on this continuum. And when people would flip into this state that we might call enlightenment, they could end, end up anywhere on this continuum. And so that was a, a tremendous, uh, I think, uh, discovery on his part. First of all, he's the only person I've known who's been able to so, to so effectively find a way of researching this, and he's the only person I know who's come up with uh, this very helpful continuum that helps people to see where they are in this continuum. And it unites uh, the many dis disparate ways that people have talked about this, the different traditions can find themselves somewhere on this continuum. And then he's the only person I know who's been able to develop a course that helps people to actually achieve this. So I got an email from him two hours after I, this question was formulated, and I knew, uh, and he told me about this course that he's developing. And I knew instantly that this was going to be the answer to my question.
I mean, it was that quick. The dream, then the, um, uh, the question that formulated out of that dream, and then two hours later getting this email from him. And I said, Jeffrey, I want to be a part of that course. And so uh, the course itself, when I took it, I think we ended up, it probably was about 20 weeks long. There was a lot of intensive meditation that happened within it. But he's been able to get great results with this. Um, and sure enough, I was able to find myself at uh, a, a location on his continuum, which is, again, very powerful. And it did answer my question because what I experienced in that was something I came to call undifferentiated silence. So it was a position where it was no longer me as this individual self, but it was me as this undifferentiated silence out of which everything of the physical and non-physical universe uh, sort of arose out of that ground of being. So it's very, very uh, enlightening and very powerful uh, to be able to find the answer to that question. And Jeffrey and I have continued our relationship since then. And he and I uh, are looking at doing a um, series of books that, that will be centered around his work. So um, this may take precedence over my second book, but eventually I'm going to get that second book for sure. Now, when, when this happens, you know, when you kind of reach this sense of enlightenment or this connection, are you talking about connecting with something or just feeling a part of the whole? Or how would you relate this to, I don't know, a connection with divine or God or... Mm -hmm. Is that what this is about in, in some ways of trying to get into that space and, and being shed of the ego and of the self and experiencing that? Yeah, that's a really good uh, question, April. It, it is a fundamental shift in identity. And I think that's the key, you know, uh, no longer being locked within this individualized sense of self. Suddenly now you're able to uh, not just be a part of the whole but to identify with the whole. And that's a very profound shift uh, because it changes the foundation of your sense of, of self and sense of being. But I, at the same time, I don't want to give the impression that this is uh, uh, 100% all the time experience. It's more like being knowing it's there and that uh, it's something that can be accessed when you sort of choose to. Uh, and it, so the percentage of time that you're there can vary. And I think that this is, that for me, this is really a key point. It's not as if we're trying to eradicate the ego, which is more like the Eastern perspective, where in order to uh, sort of join with the Godhead, you have to destroy this ego. I think in the Western world, we've been working on, on developing the ego for, for quite a long time. And I don't think we really have a choice in going back and, and sort of suddenly um, eliminating it entirely. I think it, for me, we're really in the process of growing the ego into something new. Right now, we're locked in, in the Western world, we're pretty much locked into this um, sense of being where the ego is all we have you know we we just don't know any other way around it but i think jeffrey martin's work and other work like it are opening up a new potential for us where we can uh sort of 
maintain this ego, but also be able to zoom our perspective to the all or this undifferentiated silence, use whatever word you want, and then zoom back when it's, when it's necessary. Because I think the ego had, it has something uh, really important to offer, and that's a unique perspective on the universe. So for me, what we're doing is not really eliminating the ego, but we're helping it to grow into a new relationship in which it finds itself within a larger context. And then the ego is, it can let go of some of its more obsessive tendencies and allow its, uh, these other uh, sorts of awarenesses to begin to assume a larger role in life. And when we do that, I think the ego is then going to be able to relax in such a way that, that we won't be locked into this constant um, effort of the ego to prove itself, to, to stake out its territory, to go to war. But it, the ego can learn to be much more relate, relational and much more connected than it is right now so that isolation is not its primary experience anymore. Does that and make sense? Yeah, it does. And I'm curious to know, like, with this experience that you've had, how do you walk differently in the world? Or how do you, how do you find yourself interacting with mm. other human beings? And is that different than, let's say, where you were back in 2008? Uh, it depends on uh, what time of day you get me. <laughs> <laughs> and where I am on the continuum between the ego and this uh, unit of sense of being. The difference, again, is, is uh, I know that it's always there, that, that this shift in personal identity can, can be accessed. But one of the uh, two really uh, profound things that I began to experience, one was um, every, I, every once in a while I would know that um, I, I would have this sense of joy sort of welling up within me that I'd never experienced before. And it wasn't something that I would choose, and it wasn't dependent on anything. Uh, in the, within Jeffrey Martin's course, they began to call it unprovoked happiness. You know, it wasn't the result of anything that was external. It was simply an internal sense of expansion, letting go, and, and almost a, a delight that would well up within uh, almost like a, at a gut level. Actually, it was at a gut level that would then expand from there. And then another really important feeling was uh, a sense of profound safety within the world. You know, when we're, when we're locked in the ego, and the Western perspective, I think, is dominated by this, um, it's because we're in this me and not me, sense there's there's a and there's a division between those two uh we we don't really trust the part of the world that is not me you know it's it's like the world's always out to get us you never know what's going to happen next and so you got to prepare for the future and you've got to build up these barriers around you because you know you just never know what's going to the boogeyman's going to come from you know there was an old saying you know uh, you have to um Plan uh, for the future or you can uh, plan to, what is it, something, if you fail to plan, you can uh, plan to fail. So, you know, the ego's always got to plan for every contingency that's going to happen. you got to be prepared, you know. Well, all of that begins to drop away. 
And what replaces it is because you know that your fundamental identity is within the awe or the undifferentiated silence, and because you know that there is no real division line between me and not me, then the world is me. So why not trust that? And so if the world is me, then the world has my best interest in mind at all times. And so suddenly, for the first time, there's a feeling of safety. And that's really a big change. Wow, pretty amazing. Yeah. The other thing I think, too, if I may, just a third thing, and Jeffrey Martin is really good about talking about this. If you pay attention, you'll notice that for when you're locked in this um, individual sense of self, there's always a running commentary in your, in your brain that's telling you how good you're doing or how bad you're doing. And, you know, oh, man, you, you could have said that better. What, you know, what were you thinking, you know? Or, you know, why, what it, why is it that you can't eat without getting your dinner all over your shirt? I mean, your shirt looks like a Picasso. Come on. And this brain is, this, this running commentary is always going on. And Jeffrey Martin says, you know, if, you're, if you were to run into that running commentary in your brain at a cocktail party, you, you like get away as fast as you possibly could. <laughs> and yet it's there all the time and we take it for granted and we don't realize that it's possible to live without that or for that to go silent. Mm. And so when that goes silent then our experience of the world is very different. Because normally what we think is our experience of the world is actually our running commentary on the world. We're not really experiencing the world. But when that goes silent, then you, you can experience the world in a more direct way without this verbal uh, commentary on, not only on the world, but how you're doing within it. And, and I think that that has a lot to do with this... Um, what Jeffrey Martin calls non-symbolic experience. Uh, words are symbols. Uh, they're, not, they're not the reality of, of this world, but they're symbols about the reality. And when the words can go silent, now we're in a non-symbolic experience of the world, and it's just very, very different. Now, is that similar to going into the void, or is this, or am I thinking of something different? I think it has a lot of similarities, Michael. And again, that's, I think that's a very insightful comment. Um, and I can only talk about that from my own direct experience. And so I don't want to imply that this is a universal thing. When I, when I was at the Monroe Institute, the, the void was one of the things that I experienced. In fact, it's kind of a destination point within their first program called Gateway gateway voyage um and for me the void was this place of profound silence and potential but it didn't stay with me necessarily and for me at that point in time it was a non-physical experience in other words it wasn't something that i necessarily experienced within the world but it was it, it happened within the experience of the um of of the sound environment that was created there when we were lying in our beds and listening through headphones. 
um, this feeling of safety and quiet that I experienced as a result of Jeffrey Martin's course, which he calls, by the way, the finder's course as opposed to uh, the seeker's course, you know, <laughs> rather than just seeking, you can actually now find what you're looking for, which I thought was pretty clever. Um, this sense of quiet and stillness and having the internal voice go silent is something that happens within the physical world and also can happen in the non-physical world so that it's no longer uh, relegated to a strictly meditational state. It's become, it, it can become more of a universal state. Okay. And I've, I've experienced uh, probably once or twice the, this void and it's, mm -hmm. It's very, at first it's kind of startling because you're just kind of, it's almost like an empty room, but there's no floor, there's no ceiling, there's no walls, it's just black and right. silence. And of course, you know, it only lasts for like maybe 10 seconds, at least for mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. And it it just kind of does open up for more questions, but you kind of get all the answers at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is kind of, yeah, I, I it is very kind of profound, and it's also uh, I, I wanted to bring up uh, before about uh, Robert Monroe at the <laughs> institute. Did you ever meet him? Or no, uh, he died. I think it was in 1995, and I went to my first course there. I think it was 1997. Okay. At that time, his daughter uh, Lori Monroe was uh, the president and executive director of the Monroe Institute. Okay, that's right. Yes. And in his books, he talks about uh, different locations like uh, Focus 21 and um, right. there's a few others that are escaping me right now. But mm -hmm. can you – do you want to describe some of that a little sure. bit? Okay. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, so Robert Monroe was interested in uh, – I should go back that in the 1950s, um, he was involved in radio and was a very prolific radio producer and writer, and um, was involved in some very famous radio shows. Perhaps the mo most famous one was called The Shadow. And, um, but in, I think it was 56 or 57, uh, he started having spontaneous out-of-body experiences, and this really threw him. Um, and he had to find some way of deal not only dealing with this, but... Uh, Getting, getting over the fear of it, and also then, once he did that, to be able to explore it. Because he was involved in sound, he thought, well, maybe there's a way we can create sound, uh, and a sound environment that would help people to achieve these states. And he developed what became known as the hemisync system. Uh, and with these uh, frequencies, he was able to help many, many people to achieve different states of consciousness that uh, he labeled. He kind of created a map of, of human consciousness that was very useful for lots of people. And the map was revolved around what he called focus levels. He wanted to um, find a way of talking about these uh, without using traditional language and, and without front-loading people as to what their experience was going to be before they had the experience. And so he just put numbers uh, to these various focus levels, thinking that numbers themselves were pretty, pretty neutral. Uh, 
Uh, one problem with numbers, of course, is that you know you tend to think that a higher number is a more sublime, more um, uh, wonderful uh, experience than the others. But that was not his intent at all. Uh, the numbers were just nomenclature. So the first uh, focus level that he uh, developed was called Focus 10, and he called that the mind awake, body asleep state. And uh, that's just uh, sort of, in many ways, it's, it's very, it was where I discovered this twilight zone between sleep and waking. And uh, so Focus 10 is a way to uh, maintain your awareness in a state where you would normally fall asleep. Normally when we go to bed at night, body gets relaxed and then boop, we cross over into an unconscious state that maybe we remember something out of it called the dream. But his intent was to be able to explore this unconscious territory with a fully awake mind while the, the body was pretty still and very comfortable and essentially asleep. So that was the first one. And the second one was called Focus 12. And that's the state of expanded awareness. And then Focus 15, which um, uh, he called the state of no time or the state beyond time or lots of people expo ex uh, experiences as what you called it, Michael, the void. Okay. And then Focus 21, which is the bridge state between physical reality and non-physical experience. So that was kind of the map that he set out. And uh, it, when you go through the first course there, you go through all, all, all of those states. And, uh, you know, some people will resonate more with one state versus another. Um, but it tends to be a pretty profound experience for most people who go there. So one of the things that, you know, I was thinking, you know, and just kind of talking about some of that work that you were doing, we're talking about this void work. And, you know, I work a lot primarily with some of my clients that are really struggling with anxiety. And I feel like if they heard that description of this workshop, they would say, give me some of that. Right. You know, all I want is for my mind to stop these thoughts, right. to stop the planning to stop. And I think that, you know, most people that are, even if they're not necessarily on a spiritual path, but they're just living day to day, a lot of people are just looking for what you're speaking about, you know, for that silence, for maybe that experience or that emotional feeling of safety and less fear and just bringing more comfort into this human existence because I think it can put a lot of people on on overload. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so I find the work that, you know, you're doing and his name is Jeffrey Martin. Jeffrey Martin. Jeffrey Martin. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, that that really sounds pretty interesting and just to really bring maybe more peace of mind um, to more people in the world to get them to feel this, experience it, and practice it, and try to bring it into their day-to-day -day lives. Well, that's why I think it's tremendously important work. Um, and it, it, it really gives you, as I said before, gives you a very different foundation point for your life. And, and isolation and is no longer defining who you are. Anxiety is no longer defining who you are. And instead of the world being something that is the enemy, you begin to start working in concert with the world rather than against it. And all of those are, are I think, hugely important for our next evolutionary step as a species. Um, because if, if, we don't make that, if we don't make that jump, 
into exactly what you're talking about, April. We're going to destroy the planet, or we're going to destroy each other. And, you know, the, I think the planet's probably going to go on. We're just going to be invited not to be here anymore. And so we're at a point now, and I don't mean this in a, in a negative or fearful way. I look at this as a very hopeful thing. I think, we, I think the path is opening up for us. And it's a path that we haven't seen before this point in time. And because the path is opening up for us, that gives us tremendous hope for the future. And what do you say to people like, so, you know, you're going to these workshops or you're studying this or you're trying to find this enlightenment. And a lot of times I'll have people ask me, like, how do I maintain it? How do I sustain it for longer periods of time? You know, like you said, you, it depends on what time of the day you catch me. <laughs> um, but... Right. You know, I, I think that once you start doing this work, there's a longing for that. And when you're not in that space or you're not feeling that joy or that connectedness, life can feel uncomfortable and you kind of yearn for that connection or that alignment um, again. And do you have any suggestions on, you know, are we just supposed to be practicing this or really making it, you know, there to be diligent time every single day you should be meditating or you should be journaling or, you know, how how do you make it become just maybe more like an 80-20 where you're 80% mm -hmm. of the time connected, maybe 20% right. not so much. Any right. thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, and I think that that's where the Finder's Course is also a, a, a good, um, has a really good answer to that. Uh, you know, at the Monroe Institute, what, what we would do, people would come there for basically about five and a half to six days. And during that five and a half, six days, you were completely removed from your normal environment. We would even ask people to voluntarily give up their watch. And so now you're no longer subject to the time constraints and time pressures. And you could just be there and, you know, you would do these exercises and one would build on the other and you would get into this amazing space. Then at the end of it, you would go back into your normal world and you know, the, the high that you experienced for that from the Monroe Institute might last for a week, maybe two, maybe even a month. But it, eventually, it was like the demands of the world would would come back into play again, and you'd have to, you'd, yeah, I got to go back there and get another fix, you know. Um, but one of the, the way the Finder's Course is structured is that you're actually doing it at home. You're not doing it anywhere. You're not going anywhere to do it. And so, what you're doing is is um, integrating it into your normal day as opposed to being removed to uh, a new environment. That's that's a big uh, big difference, I think. And and by the way, I, I also want to say that anything I'm saying, I don't mean in any way to be derogatory toward the Monroe Institute because it's still it's an amazing experience. And anybody who has the money to go there, I would recommend it without hesitation. But to get at the question that you're talking about, uh, April, it, the advantage of the um, finder's course is that you do it, you find ways to, to carve out the time to do this meditation because, you know, as I said to myself, look, I got 15 to 20 weeks to achieve something maybe that, that I've been dreaming of my, all my life. I'm going to find a way to do it. I don't care how, how it happens. I'm going to make it work for 15 or 20 weeks. I can do that. And I did. So if you if you're doing it at home and you know that that it's going to it's going to take a period of your life where you might have to make some sacrifices and changes, 
but it's not going to last forever. And you know that there's something at the end of that that's really extremely valuable, then it becomes much easier to, to make those choices, to, to carve out the time. Yeah, and so, I think so, I think sometimes too, just in our society, we kind of want we want it immediately. You know, it's like we want the feeling, but ah, do right. I really want to put in the work or right. the time? <laughs> um, but yeah, that that makes sense to just basically put that time aside and and know that. And so, because you're because you're doing it within the context of your normal life, it becomes easier then to integrate that after the course is over too, because you've already started to integrate it as part of your normal life. That's a that's a that's a really great advantage, I think. So you have a second book coming out, and mm-hmm. you're working with Jeffrey Martin on mm-hmm. the Finders course. What else is in store for you in the future? Well, um, actually, right now that's probably enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I you know it's, it's been interesting. The world has conspired in a way to. Um, give me the freedom and the time to do these really important, uh, in my mind, I think they potentially world-changing projects. And, you know, this, my second book is going to be about that sort of that conspiring of the world, the world no longer being the enemy, but the world being an ally. And so, you know, I'm, I'm going to be looking at those issues of time money and enlightenment uh, from, I think, uh, pretty revolutionary ex- uh, perspectives. You know, just to give you an example of that, uh, this issue of time, you know, we always think of time as flowing from the future through the present and then into the past, and that the past is, is pretty much locked into uh, what it is, is by memory, and the future is infinite uh, uh, possibilities that we have no way of really connecting with or understanding. Uh, but I'm, I'm finding that uh, in a lot of ways, because of my work with Skip Water at the Monroe Institute and the, uh, the remote viewing perspective, that time is, is much different from what we conceive of it. Robert Sardello wrote a book called Love in the Soul, and he makes, a, a for me, a very startling, but I think a very accurate uh, observation. He says that uh, we're now moving into a period when uh, we have thought of the world as being a result of cause and effect. In other words, cause happens in the past, produces an effect in the present, and then that kind of creates the future. And so we've always been oriented toward the past to kind of give us a, a standing in the world, find our place within the world, to give us the structures that give our life meaning, etc. But now we're, we're entering into a time where those very structures of the past are breaking down in a huge way. Uh, all of the support systems, all the, the assumptions, all of the um, advice that was effective in the past is no longer effective now because we are entering to, into a period of such massive change and the change that, the pace of change is accelerating so it's almost as if we're burning the bridges to the past and Robert Sardello is saying we're now coming to a period where we have to be paying attention to the future and it's almost as if the future now is pulling us rather than the past pushing us 
And so that's a very different uh, orientation to time. Now cause is actually located in the future, not in the past. And, and, and we have to learn how to deal with that. And I think that this is, this is another step in the evolutionary process. Great. Time always flies with you, Paul. <laughs> That's how you know you're having fun. I feel like this interview was, we just got on in five minutes and I have like 40 more questions that I want to ask sure. you, but we're almost at our limit. We're almost out of time here. Well, if we need to, we can always do a follow-up. How's that? That would be yeah, great. Because I, I would also really, I think I would love to have you on for another interview because I think another really good topic of discussion is the whole spirituality and religion thing. And how do you oh, yeah. put the two together? How do you remain maybe right. still loyal to a belief system that you have yet? Can you still explore these other areas and, and not have that conflict? And I just think, you know, with your experience, you know, in the church and, you know, being a pastor and stuff that that is, that's a whole nother show. Right. Right. And in fact, you know, April, that, that really was the focus of that first book, A Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, is exactly that question. How can you uh, find a way with, within a tradition or, or reframe a tr your tradition in such a way that it makes sense to begin to exploring these things? Yeah, and I, I think many people, um, you know, th that, that would just be an interesting topic for many people to hear because I think at some point, once you start to explore you know, some of these other realms. I mean, Mike, that's what happened to you. That's basically how, you know, yeah. it got you started into this whole thing with the documentary of the path, you know, and kind of questioning your beliefs and your religion. And, and I think that eventually that happens to people once they start opening up to some of these other realms. Yeah. The religion, uh, <laughs> grew up very strict Catholic, uh, family. And, uh, and then you, you know, you just have that, that point where you're just like, it, there's some truth there, but it's it's very different. I don't, I don't know how to explain it. It's you know that you can see the truth in religion, but you know that there's there's more to it, and you can see where man has rewritten it through history. Mm -hmm. And then you know, just stumbling across the Monroe Institute and finding this whole you know group of people that are just studying consciousness and what's beyond physical, pretty much. You know, I found that very exciting, and you know, that's pretty much where we met you. <laughs> right back to the beginning of you know right. the conversation, but yeah, it uh, yeah, like April said, you know, we could go on for another couple hours with <laughs> just talking about this stuff. But basically, we want to know uh, how can people get a hold of you? You know, your book and your future book, and uh, maybe even Jeffrey Martin's course if it's available yet. Okay, so first, uh, people uh, can get my book. It's on Amazon. Again, it's called Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. Uh, it's available um, both in, in uh, hardback, and I think there's a digital version of it too. Um, and if I'm almost afraid to give out my, <laughs> my email. Um, oh, let's just go ahead and do it. Why not? Uh, you can reach me at... Uh, P as in Paul, L as in Lawrence, Rademacher, that's R-A-D-E-M-A-C-H-E-R. So that's P-L-Rademacher at gmail.com. And then uh, Jeffrey Martin's uh, course, um, you know, I, I, honestly, I don't know uh, how to tell you to do that because he's still, he's still been kind of in research mode on that. 
Um, but I, I would urge people to either Google Finder's Course or Jeffrey Martin, uh, J-E-F-F-E-R-Y, Martin, and, um, and then maybe um, put in the, the non-symbolic consciousness or, or persistent non-symbolic consciousness. And eventually I think you'll run across his stuff, hopefully. All right. Well, it's great having you on the show, and uh, we'll it's definitely get you get you back in the future. Sounds great. Thank you Thank so much. Thanks, Paul. Great to connect with you. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at com or send us a tweet at the past series. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.